um, artificial intelligence is affecting us financially and emotionally. And those are two very big things. Hey guys, welcome back to Scaling Side Hustles. I'm Val. And I'm Hill. And we will eventually be joined by Joshua and a very special guest today. Micah Brown. Micah Brown. Like we mentioned last episode, we're going to be taking breaks here and there to do what we're calling alt alt episodes, where we have the opportunity to invite on special guests, answer your questions. Um, So this time, our first alt episode is with a very special guest. Yeah, Micah Brown. So he's like a tech guy, tech mogul. He's an investor and an inventor of an awesome product that he's gonna get into other details of. Basically, we were really interested in talking with him because AI is affecting, it's affecting everything, the future of work, and he has so many amazing insights. He's created products that are really revolutionizing the tech world, AI world, and so. Also, he has a really cool accent. Um, (laughs) I love accents. He's from London. Which obviously makes him sound smarter instantly, but he is really smart, so. Give me me an accent. Nope. (laughs) So he's done really awesome TED Talks and been guest at prestigious universities, which is really exciting. So we really hope you like this episode. It's Micah Brown. Enjoy it. Micah Brown here today, which is really fun. Um, a little bit about Micah. Let's see. So this is we Googled you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's not hard to find. No, no, not at all. But actually, you, you jumped. Or I'll go in through it. Um, so I see you're a neuroscience entrepreneur, yes. investor, yes. founder of a tech startup, yes. financial and data engineer. Yes. Yeah. What are we missing? What are you? What are you uh, most identified? I don't as put right it now? on there, but I was a professional musician who was Grammy nominated once. <gasps> That's super exciting. That explains the things that you've created that we want to learn more about. Okay, very cool. We do have like a question if we want to just jump in. Absolutely, hit me with the questions, yeah. Because looking you up, you do a lot with AI tech. So how have you seen firsthand um, how advances in AI tech are changing this job industry? Big question. Yeah, I think that, I think two things come to mind. I think when we think about chat, Everybody's always talking about chat. Chat, 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 chat. Let's make it real, right? We're all sitting in here. There's a microphone. There are cameras, right? Imagine if no one had to operate the microphone or cameras, right? Well, what would Antonio? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And I, you know, I'm a copywriter, and I'm freaked out by these things that everyone's just gonna because people always make it ten thousand foot, right? So I'm gonna get ridiculously granular today, but you always need to make these changes personal, right? Because we always talk about truckers, we always talk about restaurant stuff, we always talk about all these industries, like, oh yeah, it's just gonna go away. No, those are like humans. <laughs> so I think, let's make, let's make it finance specific. So if we take um, equities trading, for instance, you've got a back-end trade execution officer, you've got the handsome trader on the trading floor, right? And then you've got somebody in between who also does order execution. The order execution person and the back-end trading execution officer are gonna disappear. Right? Okay, they're, they're gonna go. Goodbye. Why are they gonna go? Because if you think about, let's say Morgan Stanley, right? So Morgan Stanley has a trading arm. And in that trading arm, most of what needs to be done is client communication. If the trades are being executed automatically at scale, if they're being annotated, identified, commented on in a regulatory compliant way at scale, right, in, in a way that makes sense for the, the SEC and the FSA in the UK, mm-hmm. then those jobs just disappear. Those are middle-class jobs. 
So what does that mean? What do we do? I'm, I'm, I'm going through something. I'm taking it. you okay. through. One. And I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to consistently bring you back down to our level. And that is great. So That's don't, great. please don't be offended by interrupting. I need that. No, I, I absolutely need that. So yeah. what does that mean? What does that mean about college, right? American education, especially higher education, is a $2 trillion a year industry, right? Why are people paying $2 trillion a year? Because they think they're going to make three. They think for generations and generations and generations, if you go to Duke or if you go to UNC, if you go to Cambridge or Harvard, Oxford, you're going to always have a job. No, technical operators will have a job. A technical operator is someone who specializes in something, right? So that might be in the copywriting world, someone who specializes in exact emotional copyright mm -hmm. that appeals to a very particular audience, which ChatGPT3 is never going to be able to. And you to. mean this is a human? This We're is talking a, about a human. Someone who writes for the New York Times. I feel like we have to clarify that. Somebody who writes for the New York Times. Yeah. It's a very specific job. It's the creme de la creme of uh, copywriting and journalism. Because why? Because you have to evoke emotion in your articles. Yeah. And robots can't do that. And robots can't do that. In fact, that's the holy grail of... My phone is called Singularity with a C. It's a play on words because it's about, hey, we're heading towards this thing called the singularity. What is the singularity? The singularity is when you can't tell the difference between a person and a robot, and the robot is so convincingly human that aren't they human? Right? So to come back to your question, <laughs> two big changes, right? Um, artificial intelligence is affecting us financially and emotionally. And those are two very big things. So one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on this podcast is because within five minutes of speaking to you, I realized that you could shed a lot of insight into the, the areas that we're trying to impact and the people that we're trying to reach. They don't have as much knowledge as me, let alone you. Yeah. So how do we communicate change to them? How do we educate them on the direction they should be taking their small businesses um, to not be replaced by yeah, yeah. types of machines in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you're going to get hyper practical, right, you're talking about the shop front owner in Hudson Valley or in Charlestown or in Matthews, right? You have to be able, people always use this word digital savvy. Oh, get digital savvy, get digital savvy, get digital savvy. What does that really mean? <laughs> what does that really mean? If, if you're going to go and learn how to use Facebook and create groups and how to get on Shopify, that's great, but that's kind of useless, to be honest with you, frankly. Was, was it at one point relevant and now it's useless? It, you got to remember what's happened to those things. All right, so there's a company called ClearCode. There's also a company called Pipe. You look these companies up, right? Um, what these companies do is they finance over the top of actual real business activities, right? So for a Shopify storefront owner, um, that Shopify storefront owner is making $50,000 a year, right? And it's great. Now they can make 60, now they can make 100. The only issue is they've got to edge someone else out to be able to make that growth, right? So what that essentially means for every storefront owner is there's much more increased competition. Yeah. So every storefront owner needs to learn to code. That's really what it comes down to. They need to learn to they code. They need to learn to code. It kind of doesn't matter what language. Ideally, Python. Everyone should learn Python, right? Because once a storefront owner learns to code, there are definitely irreplaceable community staple level things that every storefront owner does. Which in the 60s, in the 50s, that's what made the economic boom that happened, right? In the 80s, it kind of collapsed a little bit. In 2000, it collapsed a little bit because there was so much economic activity, right? But every storefront owner, especially, let's take a meat market owner, right? The meat market owner knows, you know, what families need what meat, what times of the year they need that meat. They proactively buy for that meat, 
they no, know that maybe there's some misbehaved kids that come into the shop that need to be able to sit down and draw for an hour, right? Like these are like community-based items that make people special. Now the issue is what's happened is there's been so much money banging around in the startup ecosystem for so many years that competition became business. Which, you know, business is competitive, right? But competition isn't the case for every single business. Hyper-competitiveness is not for the meat storefront owner, right? But these big financing companies and the banks behind them that kept wanting more and more and more and more and more of the pie, they have made it that way, which is why every storefront owner needs to let go. Now, when you say, again, here we go, bringing it, bringing it low. <laughs> when you say storefront owner, yeah. or is that just a term? Does that mean every entrepreneur, every small business owner? Or just brick and mortar. Or just brick and mortar. I'm talking specifically about brick and mortar. Brick and mortar. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Needs to learn to code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, that's your that's your that's your sixty year old grandma who's had that meat store in her family for one hundred and fifty years, and she has to learn to code. And that gap is really clear, right? Yeah. But that is what is going to allow people to participate in the digital economy. So if they don't, they're just kind they're of left die. behind. That's they're gonna die. They're dead. Okay. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, know, right? but I'm just. Actually, I'm kind of not exaggerating to this of you. Like, left in the dust. Yeah. If we look at the pandemic, what happened? It accelerated. Accelerated all, all of that. Yeah. Literally, I can't remember what the exact percentage is US-wide, UK-wide. I think it was like 10% of brick and mortar retail shops that were doing below like a million dollars a year close. Yeah. They just disappeared. Right. So... Okay, so the solution is if people want to keep up is to learn to code. Yeah. How can someone, how can people who are not immersed in the tech world, AI world like you are, and has to focus on their business, how can they balance the two? Like, how do you keep up with AI? I think, like, integrate it into your. There are so many free resources. There's Coursera, there is General Assembly, there are these resources. But beyond that, right, I think that. When I think about like the New Deal, for instance, right? When you say that word, the New Deal, it connotates, it evokes a very specific emotion in America, a very specific time, a very specific way that society was set up, which is everybody got something and they had a chance, right? Or the GI Bill, which was linked to houses, right? I think that there hasn't been a thing that everybody can hold on to because the resources are out there, right? They're already out there. There's General Assembly, there's all these different things I've talked about. There's grants, there's community grants, there's community funds, there's government initiatives, right? There, there was literally COVID loans that were being handed like 100,000 each to people. But I think what America really needs is someone to like sit there and say, hey, this is the new, new deal. This is the new gold rush. This is the new exodus of opportunity, right? Because the opportunity is already there. But the gulf between what people desire to be seen as and what needs to happen in the economy for it to advance is huge. So yeah, so you know, just to reel off a few resources, there are accelerators, there's ERA, there's Techstars, if you've got a high-tech business. Um, there is, I can't remember what the name of the uh, program that President um, Biden just signed, I can't remember, the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA put together community centers for coding and engineering. And I think it's like a billion dollars of that was just dedicated to that, right? Um, there's things like Coursera, there's General Assembly, there's all these things, you know, they're, they're very Googleable, but I think it's more about sit and ask yourself what you want to do. Do you want to participate 
in the modern economy or not. And if not, that's okay, because you've got to remember, these are people who've seen the Great Depression come and go, right? There are there are 50-year-old, 60-year-old individuals that kind of don't want to participate in the economy. So it's really a matter of decision. If I'm a copywriter, see, then that's selfish too, because I'm like asking for advice. <laughs> but uh, maybe someone else out there can yeah, like, yeah. like, how do no, I, anonymous copywriter, yeah. How do I use those tools to my advantage? Like yeah. what, how would, how does that I think it's, it's especially the gold rush right now for copywriters. Look, if you had five clients, right, you had, um, magazine one, magazine two, magazine three, and like publishing house one and publishing house two, right? You had to spend 10 hours in the day thinking about what the branding alignment was, thinking about who your internal client is, the person who hired you at one of those companies, thinking about what they want, thinking about what their bosses want, sitting down, writing all of that down, translating that into stage one of the copy. You're probably a perfectionist, so you did 15 different versions of it, right? And you did 15 different versions for all five of these people, like 72 different versions of the copy, and then you delivered one each. Mm -hmm. That entire process is automated. The but I'm bit, not losing my creative, like the human The human bit it. is the most important bit. You just need to learn how to interact with the tools. And now it's so easy with ChatGPT3 that you say, hey, CNN and Harper's Bazaar and like Barron's, right? What do they want? Tell ChatGPT3 that. Get back the copy. No, that's not right. No, that's not right. No, that's not right. No, that's right. Perfect. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to give the context. I'm going to give the why. I'm going to give the how. I'm going to give the meaning. And that takes me 10 minutes. And now I've done five days of work in 10 minutes. Yeah. But people just don't think about it that way. It's not it being framed like that way. It's threatening. Yeah. yeah. If you don't understand it. If you don't understand it. I got a question. I was going to yeah. type it in, but I thought I'd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a consultant. I work with several startups in the Bay Area. That's Daryl Sarant one of our team members. He's a former Tesla employee and freelance data scientist. I remember uh, not too long ago, I was involved in a project where I was uh, developing a website and we were using a lot of no code, yeah. no code yeah. tools. And it, we turned out the, and this was before I actually, I jumped in on the project at that point where they already like were well into it and we found out. Squarespace yeah. like uh, prototyping that kind of yeah, I mean, we were found out that the tool, the, the project that they were, were working on wasn't really, uh, wasn't a fit for the no-code tool they were using. And just kind of going on to the point where um, you talked about everybody has to learn how to code. Um, I was just curious um, from your, your standpoint, what role do you think no-code tools would play in um, kind of like for any, any storefronts who are looking to really um, tap into the digital economy? And do you think it it would be enough for because I know uh, from my experience I know no code tools would be good for certain applications, but for others um, you 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 need more of a custom development. And I was kind of I was kind of curious what your your what your take on it was. Yeah, um, I think it comes back to kind of what you were talking about, right? <laughs> when you think about the people in the economy who currently do what they do. So let's get like hyper-realistic. Let's say a carpenter, let's say a meat store owner, let's say a, a farmer, a bean farmer, right? If you ask the bean farmer what time of the year to go and collect his beans from his farm and what kind of tractor to use, you would look at you like you're absolutely crazy because he knows exactly what time of the year to go and collect his beans or what kind of tractor to use, right? I think from, from the perspective of whether no-code tools are indispensable for real-world businesses, Yes and no, right? It's more about the business, yeah. right? I think we really need to change our perspectives as technologists, change our perspectives sometimes as journalists, change our perspectives sometimes as storytellers, and go from what can 
people do for the technology, right? What what can like every storefront owner, every farmer, every meat processor in the meatpacking district in New York do for no code tools like Figma, right? Versus as these technologists, as these influencers, how do we go to Figma and say, hey, can we have a farmer's group? And in that farmer's group, we have one dedicated CSR, customer service representative, who all they know is the business model of farms. And by the time, you know, they have gone through 10 different farming companies and the farmers that are attached to them, there's a Figma-specific application for farms, which there's a real thing that a lot of farmers are very high skill individuals in terms of what they do, but they're not describing that to the world. So it's, le- it's less like, how can everyone else work with no-code tools, right? Which is also yeah. kind of a question. How can everyone else work with SQL Server? How can everyone else work with Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got NatLib, right? It's like, it's a very obscure square pig round whole thing. We've always, we've always got to reverse our thinking about technology is how do, especially as people have some remote understanding of the tools and know of their existence, because, you know, there's 300 people, million people in America, and at least half of them literally don't understand where technology is today and the tools and the fact that they even exist like chat gpt3 or no code tools like figma right how do as individual technologists journalists professionals how do we empower every single person we talk to who doesn't have the expertise with understanding those things and flex to them yeah yeah that's a really good point yeah because i think the common especially for people in the startup you know silicon valley world they, they tend to build we build technology to solve kind of people's Problems is that's what we do, but we don't think about the other way. Where how can we empower people to actually use uh, use so the tools that are already Sarah, out there? Yes, yeah. Uh, all of you know, Elizabeth, what's her name's company? Like, yeah, Threnos, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so part of like our um, objective, our mission at our company is to empower marginalized communities um, through education, through uh, giving them like ambition to start their own companies, try to unlock that in them, yeah. um, giving them the confidence to say, this is how you do it and you're capable of doing it. You don't need to go get a degree to start. You can you can do them simultaneously. And so I think like, you know, helping us to better educate them um, and in the direction that they should go uh, would be really beneficial. So like if you were talking to those marginalized communities and you said, okay, this is square one, what is square one for people that are just getting started? I think for anybody who's getting started with technology, but especially marginalized communities, is an awareness of what you're trying to do, right? Because I think if you think about a college like CCNY or Howard, or even a lot of HBCUs, there are a lot of high school people in those colleges, but then they go into conventional environments, yeah. right? Like I've seen a lot of HBCU individuals go work at like conventional finance companies um, that are not their community focused, right? It's all about what you're trying to do. You can literally have someone who's like not got a high school education, who isn't trying to get high school education, who isn't trying to go to college, isn't trying to do those things, but they might be someone in their community has a very specific understanding of one specific issue. And maybe the case isn't that they need to go and do 150 you know, coding courses. Maybe they need to understand policy and how to do grant writing and how to actually get grants and having a bank account where to put them. Or if they don't have the bank account, have someone in their community who does have that bank account. Right? My first um, company was called Film Funder, right? So this was when the Oscar So White thing was happening. Um, and I remember coming straight out of NBC and like almost 10 years of a corporate career. And I, right, the first thing I'm going to do is like make everybody be able to get money for their $100 million budget films, which is like a very small minority of people that even have a script or the education or the access 
to be creating a hundred million dollar budget film. So then I expanded it to independent filmmakers. And when I expanded it to independent filmmakers, what I found is, although there's a lot of people at NYU, at all of these different schools, these film schools across the country that have these skills, um, that's not usually what their problem is. Their problem isn't the skills that they're learning. Their problem is the rest of the ecosystem. So I ended up selling that company to um, a film production company. And now it's being rebought again by the company that bought Sentiment Capital. But my next thing was, okay, it's really the advertising world, right? Because you can raise $100 million for the film. You can raise 500K for the film. You can do a GoFundMe or Indiegogo for $1,000, right? But now how do you get that message out? And now you're dealing with Facebook ads and how to customize them and how much that costs. Or you're dealing with putting a banner up or uh, at the time, this is even 10 years ago, a paper ad like, I was like, oh, that's the next problem I'm going to solve. So I started tangling with the advertising world, which was like a very tiny drop in a massive, massive, massive bucket, right? We, we did have some success. Um, we had a really big advertising company buy the company. We helped like, you know, 15, 20,000 individuals of color and different types of minorities with the advertising business, but it was like a very small drop. So that's why I've kind of moved on to the venture capital world. So with the selling of sentiment capital and the raising of singularity, um, now I'm getting to broaden my kind of throughput, if you will. But that's again, after a lot of kind of mission oriented decisions and going, I'm trying to solve this specific problem, which is mostly about media and representation in the media and the money that comes from that and that helps you get there. Um, I think I've definitely seen other founders like me who didn't have that direction. And then they, they got tons of skills. Some of them raised a lot of money. You know, I think uh, obviously SPF is, well, he's actually technically a minority. Which is um, but SP, Sam Bateman-Fried. Thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Everyone will call SPF like it's some sort of... Sam Bateman-Fried was the CEO of FTX. And obviously there's, you know, some fraud there and whatever, but I think he's your classic example of he didn't really decide on what he was doing, but he was able to tell a very good public story. So you're saying your focus started out very broad and you were able, you've been able to like narrow it. Like you've kind of known your purpose and what you want to do, but the way you're doing that has shifted over yeah. the years. Wow. So that's, what are you? That's with the direction, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're saying people that are maybe struggling with finding that ambition and confidence to get started is to f find a clear direction. Find a clear direction and have it be your direction. That is so 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 important. It's really not 1986. It's not 2008. It's not 2009. Like especially in America, although there is definitely poverty. Although there is definitely abuse of minorities financially with the ecosystem, with the economy, all of that is real, right? But at the same time, you know, you can be in New York, a state with like state-sponsored healthcare and a bunch of resources. And if you just get access to a computer for an hour and you decide what you're doing, right? There's a bunch of grant programs. There are, you know, it's one of the only states with you either way is, right? Where you can just claim unemployment insurance, right? Like, I know there's a lot of North Carolina's are like that. So that is the age we're living in. And, and I think what's really sad is like, there's so much noise that comes from the political world, that comes from the news. It distracts people so much from all the resources that exist in the 21st century. Right. So we're actually kind of, technology is kind of leveling the playing field. Thanks. But we're just, you just need to let people know, don't feel intimidated by that. You have a role here and you can, yeah, that's, that's encouraging. So how did you learn about all of the programs that are available in the United States, being that you grew up in London? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a very good question. 
Well, you know, I, I'm thinking it's really funny. I um, I actually watched Kanye's documentary the other day. Obviously, he's completely crazy and lost his mind, but like, and I'm not Kanye. I'm not comparing myself to Kanye. Don't make that comparison. <laughs> like, his story that this was footage that wasn't released, and it fills in a lot of the gaps in his story, right? Like, I remember hearing late registration in the UK. And it was like such a fresh sound. And even the issues you was talking about, even though they were mostly American, they affected us, right? Um, as I start to think about my story, that I do have like a running set of footage that is a very exciting story, right? So to come back to the story, <laughs> um, ambition. People talk about this word, right? Ambition, 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 ambition. Ambition requires you to say that you're going to do something and define that you're going to do it and almost kind of not ignore but like resist every force that says that you're not going to and it rolls off the tongue very easily but like especially in minority communities ambition is a very hard thing to have because you gotta remember like if you already have ambition as a child and then you're going into the school ecosystem which is why a lot of kids drop out of the school ecosystem who are minorities right you're in this school ecosystem, you have this ambition and every kind of force that's communicating with you is telling you not to have it. Right. Which is kind of what happened to me. I was, you know, I was in school. Fortunately, I'm intelligent enough to have kept my grades up, right? But my thing at the time was, when I was very young, is I wanted to be a pilot, right? And class in the UK is like a whole different set of stuff than it is in America. Like the cool thing about the US is, you know, you get kind of like some very surface level encouragement. You don't get any food or you don't get any <laughs> real assistance but like at least people tell you that's a dream that's great that's the american dream right england is not like that it's like don't dream about anything but i continued to dream and as i went through my life i continued to have ambition but i channeled it into the corporate world um where i became a credit risk analyst at 17 at barclays commercial i was there during the recession i ended up being one of the few people left on my team and everyone else got fired um and I saw the recession from a frontline seat. And I also saw that like, especially in the case of Lehman Brothers, there was this world where you could get 800 times, 900 times leverage of what you were making on EBITDA. And that was really big for me, you know? Um, a lot of people don't get that experience at 17, especially minorities. But what that showed me, I was like, there's a whole world out there where if I wanna do something, there are people that will give me a lot of money to do it. Sure. And I have seen this for a fact because I'm looking through the mortgage statements for Lehman Brothers that just collapsed. And these guys had 50, 60, 100, 200 percent leverage. Right. And so that was really interesting because that happened about a year before my parents came to me one day and they were like, hey, we applied for green cards 10 years ago and here they are. And so you got to understand, like. That's in anybody's story, that's very rare, but it's like. In my story, where I kind of gotten into an English consciousness, yeah, <laughs> I'd like say, "Oh, I'm in England. I'm always going to live there. It's kind of fucking depressing. Everyone's depressing a little bit. English culture is to be quiet. I'm a naturally loud and boisterous person. I'm starting to accept that. And then it's like, hey, here's a chance to like be a completely different person. Mm. And I just came to the U.S. and I just hit the ground, literally running at Usain Bolt speeds. Mm -hmm. Nowhere in particular. How old were you? I was I was uh, 18 when I came. 18. 18. Wow. 18. Yeah. Um, and I remember coming to my our, our family, we literally, our property was being repossessed at the time. And we all got on the plane and my dad spent the last of his retirement money <laughs> to get us these plane tickets to Florida. And we all went to Florida 
And I remember just feeling like the floor of the sun hit me like, whatever I need to do to stay in America, I'm going to friggin' do it. And I remember I, I must have done about 15 different interviews in Florida without a car. So I walked to most of the interviews. Um, and which was pretty crazy because we lived we lived in West where we ended. My uncle lived in West Palm Beach. And some of the interviews like I didn't just walk to Fort Lauderdale. I took the train and I walked from the train station to Fort Lauderdale. That's his so. stomping ground. There, you got two Floridians here. Oh, yeah. really? Look at that. So you know what I'm talking about then. That he, I can imagine walking. Like you don't see anyone on the street. You don't walking. see anyone walking. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But you've got to understand, growing up, all I did was walk in the UK. So I'm like, I'm just gonna walk. Yeah. I'm just walk, you know. To cut a long story short, you know, we ended up bouncing back between the UK and the US. Um, I ended up getting a job at Aon. But to come back to your original question, right, culturally, how did I find out this information? A lot of it came from the fact that I didn't have a choice, right? Yeah. A lot of, you know, I also kind of became financially independent at a very young age, well, when I came here, which was 18. So, um, and my family, they didn't have a lot. They live in Long Island now. So I ended up taking care of them. But it was like, looking at my situation, which was good. I had a job, you know, I had a place to live. I was in New York. I was like, I need to find things that are going to allow me to advance. Yeah. But I still had my ambition. And even though it had been chopped up a little bit and moved around, it was still there. And why I'm telling you that is like, that is really the key to all of these questions. That's the key to a lot of big political questions that we have. You know, that's a, the key to a lot of employment questions that we have. That's the key to a lot of societal questions that we have. There's a lot of big things happening on the Supreme Court right now. Right. And I know people are upset about them and, and whatever. Right. But, a big thing is there's not enough representation to really fix them. But at the same time, we have this amazing opportunity technology-wise right now from a voting perspective, from an economic perspective, right? So it's really about nurturing people's ambition. That's the key. That's the key. Nurturing people's ambitions. I like that. So without um, disrespecting your your beautiful testimony, yeah. for me, I see, I see like initially you you saw opportunity through this job at Lehman's. Yes. You were able to see through the numbers. See at Barclays, but I saw what happened to Lehman's. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, so you were able to um, see potential there, see opportunity there. And then planning and chance led you guys to get the, the green card, right? Yeah. And then you saw your parents take risk. Like, huge risk. Like, I think that's huge for me because uh, you know, I saw my dad come here as an immigrant from Argentina, and he took huge risk in that. And I, I saw the dichotomy between my mom's way of living as an American, born American, and my dad as an Argentinian American that came here and spent 20 years trying to get citizenship. Okay. And like the, just the two different frames of like, I have white privilege, but like, I also can understand the perspective of the Latino immigrant. And then I see like that risk led you into persistence of like walking to and from and like making sure that no matter what, you're going to take the opportunity that you saw originally. Yes. How do we nurture people's ambition without them seeing that opportunity? I'm really into policy. I'm also really into practicality. Right. So I want to answer your question practically. So there's about 30 million people in the U.S. between the ages of about 15 to 25. Right. And about half of them are in poverty in some shape or form. By that, I mean the, the New York median um, poverty index income is around $30,000 per family of four. Now, why it adds up to a, a family of four is what happens frequently in the US, especially in immigrant families, is everybody pours into one household. Right. 
So what, sometimes you might see um, uh, an immigrant family with a house, but there's 20 or 30 people rotating through that place, right? So that's dimension one to your question. How do we get people to reach for these opportunities when they might not have the knowledge, there might not be people around them that have the knowledge and they've never seen it done. That's dimension one, right? It isn't just that they've never seen it done and they don't have the knowledge. There's uh, an architecture of people who've never seen it done. I think that from a policy perspective, um, we look at programs like, you know, the SNAP program and the school assistance program in New York. I don't know if North Carolina has one. I don't know if New York has one. This is where uh, the state pays for people to have childcare, basically, right? And I think, <laughs> I think that they're framed almost as burdens politically. I won't go into the reasons. <laughs> it's a very big, long, Overton window, yada, yada. But they're framed as burdens. And I think that framing programs which are a very small percentage of state budgets that help people who contribute to the economy disproportionately, which are the people in these households, because their economic mobility is 80% more than the millionaires and billionaires of our society. What I mean by that is if you look at the Vanderbilts, you know, their wealth has massively decreased over time. What that means is there's 100, 200 people in the family and they're running private equity firms and then doing whatever, but they're not really creating true economic opportunity, mobility. I won't say anything useful because rich people do useful things, but like they're not doing as much, yeah. right? So I'm, I'm breaking all this down for a reason, right? So, so if we're saying that we're framing the 80% of people in the economy, and it is 80%, which is why you hear this top 1% dichotomy, that's literally what America is, right? Sometimes they get it wrong because the top 1% are actually a distortion. It's actually more like the top 0.5% because top 0.5% of people in the US make $100,000 or more, which is like mm -hmm. most of the people in big, rich metropolitan areas, or so we're told. Anyway, the reason I'm saying all of this, right, is we need to change that narrative. And those three statistics are why, right? If all of these people create all of this economic opportunity, which doesn't just apply to metro areas, it also applies to farmland, to the North Dakotas, the South Dakotas, to the Iowas, right? Where that same stigma makes people who have farmland and are theoretically more wealthy not want to reach out to try and get help for their problem. That needs to stop. And that's how, number one, we solve that problem, right? Number two is I think that, I think that more attention, more opportunity, more promise needs to be given to generational breakers. What do I mean by that? I mean, the Argentinian immigrant at Harvard or the um, Latino immigrant at Cambridge or whatever, right? They need to be supported more because that one person in that person index of that family who've never seen it done, that person is that impactful. And what I kind of, <laughs> what I think is strange is like, when you think about media representation, the story is always that person gets mobile and then they get out. Yeah, That's literally in Hollywood stories, that's in popularized stories, that's in news stories. Why isn't it that person gets a bunch of support and then they can help their community? Right. Those are literally just two real data points, right? One is a policy point. There should literally be something passed at a state level that one increases the budgets of things like SNAP, right? And the uh, child assistance program. And number two, there, there needs to be something, particularly in whatever part you're in, say Democratic or Republican, but particularly Democratic, right? Where there's a banding together on that messaging. 
and almost kind of a hardline stance that's taken on that message. Anytime we hear anybody demonizing these programs, go after them. Yeah. Right. Because there's some real things that happened, whatever political kind of swing you are, where the Republicans, particularly, they choose a stance and they're like, we are not crossing lines. And they get what they want. Right. So I know the Democratic Party doesn't go that way. But, right. But I think the Democratic Party is driven by emotion. Mm -hmm. So let's use that. Let's take emotional hardlines because there's, for some reason, no policy hardlines, right? So let's take some emotional hardlines. Let's say anytime anybody demonizes SNAP, demonizes these programs that are helping people, um, we are going to make them pay the political price for that, right? Because look what happened with Obamacare. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party didn't even need to do that. They just, well, it wasn't there. It was really Barack Obama. <laughs> he created something that even for poor white people in South and North Dakota, was so important. They didn't want to talk about how important it was, but when it came to the votes, it showed up. That's why the program's still around, right? So I think that needs to be done for economic mobility. And that's how we show people that it can be done and we give them the circumstances to do it. So you guys are familiar with, with Buddhism, right? Um, so you've got like eight chakras. Um, now I think people simplify two things. I think people simplify neuroscience because <laughs> a lot of people don't know what it is, right? So they're like, all right, neuroscience is just how people are disposed to something and some people are not disposed to anything, which is an extension of what old medicine was like. No, <laughs> neuroscience is, it's like um, mechanics, right? Just because a car has a certain bolt doesn't mean that that bolt stays on that car, right? If you've got a wrench bolt on a BMW, right? And you take the wrench bolt off and you replace it with like a screw bolt, then it's got a screw bolt in it, right? That's what people are like. But we're just discovering how powerful our brains actually are. So that there's all these both, educational and medical things, right? Which I'll get to spirituality and how it relates to those two. Educational, all right, you got A, you got B, you got C, right? That system is so dumb. <laughs> that system is so unintelligent because somebody in this scoring system who got a C might go in front of a piano and spend an hour on it and become Mozart. But the person who got an A goes in front of the piano and spends an hour on it and has no idea what's going on. Because we have what creative differences we have intelligence differences and creative differences, right? So, so that's the first thing. How do we get to one, what ambition means and what it means for spirituality, right? Um, ambition, first of all, needs a new communication system. <laughs> we need a new communication system about who's worth what. And, you know, we, there's a whole bunch of other ways than rabbit holes I could go down, but I'll just say that, right? We need to start talking about people and their worth differently, not based on the conventional school system. Or let's get a new one, right? <laughs> we got it for math. Right. There was there was, you know, there was Indian math, which, by the way, has a bunch of zeros and works completely differently. And then it was simplified to the decimal system in the Roman Empire. And then it took from the decimal system to the hexadecimal system. And now we have a binary system. Right. Um, and then that was mo the binary system was mostly created in the early 19th century. Right. So we changed something. So, yeah, sorry, I'm very passionate about that. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's change how we talk about our natural powers, literally that come from the computational supercomputers that sit at the top of our skulls, right? <laughs> and then how it relates to spirituality. So I think that everybody, energy is real. I mean, you can call it pheromones, you can call it hormones, you can call it dopamine, you can call it neuroembromantin, you can call it, you know, by the way, so basic, very, very basic, simplifying a lot. If any neuroscientists hear this, I know it's more complicated than this, right? <laughs> a lot of neuroscientists. So there you go. I'm sure. Yeah. So um, 
So you've got um, dopamine, you've got serotonin, and you've got neutral neuroscience chemicals, like plus, minus, negative, right? Or zero, sorry. Zero, plus, minus. Um, and so those states alter. So if you take a bunch of sugar, you're gonna, your dopamine is going to decrease and you're going to go into the negative, right? If you exercise a lot, your dopamine is going to increase, right? What also happens is your dopamine can be manipulated. So pornography is a big thing that manipulates people's dopamine. Exercise is a big thing that manipulates people's dopamine. But most importantly, achievement is a huge thing that manipulates people's dopamine. So how do we produce dopamine? We produce dopamine from glucose. How do we produce glucose? We eat, right? So that's the real scientific hard stuff. So to achieve, I need to eat. Yes. Sorry. I'm, no, really I'm, breaking, I'm making it so everybody can agree, right? I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the more ethereal stuff now, right? So everyone, I started here. <laughs> we don't disagree about that. You can look that up. Now, I think that people process those things differently. There are people who don't eat for a week and you send them into an exam and they ace it. Now we get to chakras. So there are ways to hold on to things. That usually happens in your base chakra, right? There's literally an energetic thing that happens to you if you say, hey, that guy pushed me 10 years ago and I'm still thinking about it, right? And that applies all the way from your heart chakra all the way up to the chakra at the top of your head. So now we've got these two systems. We've got chemical systems and we've got spiritual systems. And when they align and someone is aware of both of them, they can push themselves to do amazing things. There's a lot of rumors that Albert Einstein used to sit there and not eat for long periods of time, but then write his equations. He was connected to something. So now when we talk about ambition, right, I think that, again, it comes down to differences in people, right? <laughs> I could go into the energetic reasons why I am the way I am, right? But I'd be talking for a long time, but I think I'll go into what I think are the basic buckets of people instead. I think there are people who are content. I think there are genuinely people, maybe it's to do with how they were born, maybe it's to do with who they are, they start saying, well, but at the end of the day, they're content. Now, the sad thing is that goes all the way up and down the economic spectrum. There are people who are content not having anything. And we mischaracterize that a lot. Right? So there's all these people in America that are doing so badly. There are people on farms in Iowa and that farm has been in their family for 100, 150 years. And someone fought in the Great War and the GI Bill got them in the house and they're happy. Someone in their family is opioid addicted, but they're okay. You know, they have to farm their food, but they're okay, right? What I think is really interesting is people who were not content gravitated to cities. There are a lot of people in cities who want to change their lives, right? But now we get to talk about the economic system and how energy changes in cities, right? <laughs> Most extremely wealthy people, and I'm not talking about the millionaires, I'm talking about the billionaires, right? If you go and talk to them, they are aware of energy at some level. I genuinely believe that people get together at that level and they say there's this much energy to go around and we're going to have this. And the evidence is in a lot of political discussions. Mm. Right? <laughs> the, the political discussions wouldn't be the way they are publicly if that was not going on somewhere else. Right. So what I think is there's an additional layer now for people who are in these cities the millions of people who are in New York, the millions of people in San Francisco, the millions of people in Miami, the Fort Lauderdale, wherever, there's an additional energy layer to traverse because you're literally trying to overcome systems and 
very small groups of people who run those systems to be able to better yourself. So I think that's the first thing anybody with ambition needs to understand. I understood that very early in my life, in my teenage years, when everyone else was in the park and swimming and going to Ibiza, I was on a trading floor looking at the fact that there are some people who have, there's the numbers and they have that many numbers and everyone has that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think that I had a very unique experience, but you don't have to have that experience. Literally, when I was at Barclays, I had to find and dig for a lot of that information. Um, I think there are influencers out there that talk about it. There is enough space on Wikipedia that gives you information about it, right? But again, it comes back to desire. But desire, once you have energy, desire multiplied by energy equals results. That's the way I think about it. That's the equation. You might have failed by every measure there is in the normal world. You might have gotten a terrible grade. You might literally be in a homeless shelter. You might literally have no food, right? But if you just decide, that you want to do something different, you get out of the homeless shell, you find something to do, right? All these things change. And then I think it multiplies the more results you get. Yeah. I know there's things I can do in my life in very short periods of time, huge things that I've done before and numbers that I'm able to generate because I've done it. Right. And I think that is where there is some responsibility for people because we've got to give people the environment to see those results. That is a policy question. That is an education question. That is an educational systems question. That is a political sciences, humanities question, right? Because that's the bit that usually determines whether people continue to do something or not. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up your personal story because we definitely wanted to you know, learn more about you. And you mentioned um, creating brain wrap. Yeah, right? my so, baby. It's your baby. <laughs> yeah. It's so fascinating. and. It kind of is like the future. I love that it, well, I, I want to let you like kind of give a explanation. I like hearing other people explain it. Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, don't allow us to do that. Well, well no, because it's for musicians to like combine data with like their expression. It's basically, I don't know, you're going to have to explain it, but yeah, um, it's like as someone is rapping and like flowing it's it's not predicting what you can say next it's like but it assists, it assists. Mm -hmm. i don't know can you explain yeah i can explain better? it yeah, um i mean i know that was a yeah no, that was that but i like that because i can be your pr person. i always like hearing it from other people um and i always like that people always see it's about musicians so so the, there's so much technology behind brain rap there there is something like chat gpt3 which is called nms which is um a computational uh, a semantic system that we built uh, that specifically takes a, a neuro scan, a timestamp, and relates it to a word, and then uses a flowing variable, something called a recurrent neural network, to build a library around that. Right. Wow. But that could be Chat GPT three, but it's not. Your description was about the musician, and I love that, and, and that's that's why I love hearing the explanations because people don't understand the technology; they're never supposed to. It's like, but there's something in there that helps musicians, right? Because you know, <laughs> I don't mention the artistic thing. Um, there is a TED talk about it out there somewhere. But yeah, so I, I, I am a musician. I do play the guitar. I play a couple of different instruments. Um, and I was a professional sign rapper for a label, a really big label. I wanted. <laughs> um, and I just, I saw it firsthand, you know. I saw some greats, some big names that I listened to growing up. And they get in a room with, you know, the label manager and they're like five years old. 
and they've been told how to manage their money or what they can and can't do. And, da, da, da. and I mean, I saw that in meeting after 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 meeting. And these are the people that made it, right? And then I saw like other musicians who are aspiring to be signed. I want 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 to be signed. I'm going to make myself homeless. And I'm going to do all these things to get signed, <laughs> right? And then I saw a third class of musician who are doing it. But even for them, things like the change in the Spotify algorithm, the YouTube algorithm, they're at the mercy of social media companies. So you've got record labels, social media companies, ah, and then in the middle of Spotify, right, which was supposed to be this incredible new thing that no one could explain, <laughs> which I loved, and it just isn't. It's like an extension of both of those things, right? And I was like, so we, we hear this adage all the time. We hear, you know, the fat cats and the starving dogs, and we hear the, the 1% and the 99%. And yeah, I was like, I have created enough products to make myself, I'm, I'm in a personal position where I can think financially, right? Which is nice. <laughs> um, and it's like, okay, in 2019, when, when that happened, I was like, how do I do that for other people? Really do it for other people. Because I, I thought I'd done it in my first three companies. I had Do what exactly? Help people advance economically easily. And I realized I can't do it for everyone, <laughs> right? But I can do it for musicians. Why can I do it for musicians? Because they're undervalued. They are one of the most undervalued classes of people. I won't say worldwide because they're not undervalued worldwide, but in America and Europe, they are undervalued. You gotta understand musicians have been sages since you know, time immemorial. In Israeli culture, to be a musician and to, to sing in Hebrew, and it's a privilege, right? So yeah. Um, do you think so, it's because of our consuming? Like we just consume, 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 consume. Yeah. Do you know how powerful you being on this is? Do you know? Do you know if you take how long people spend on Instagram and Facebook, and the CPM, which is the cost per mile, is called of how people pay to get your time. If you spend ten hours a day on Facebook, you should be making a hundred grand a year. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's what you are literally like. If you break down the CPM model of your life, right? Facebook is charging advertisers a hundred thousand dollars to be in your feed, right? And now let's take it to musicians. That that's just attention. But musicians are creating an asset that lasts forever, right? That goes on Spotify and gets a billion streams, which they, they get paid zero point zero 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 one percent of that. Jeez. And when we say a billion streams, right? That's literally a billion dollars. Every, every stream is almost equivalent to a dollar. I don't know if you knew that, right? No. That's why Spotify's annual results are what they are. Spotify has a business issue, not a product market fit issue. They clear like almost a trillion dollars a year, right? But they're just structuring their business in all these weird ways. And why? They hand most of it over to the labels. So how does your... How does brain wrap so come cover that pain? You, 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 uh, <laughs> you use the disadvantage as an advantage. So the disadvantage is scale, right? If you're a musician, you value your art, you have finite time, you have finite taste, you don't want to dilute yourself, right? But Spotify is diluting you. They're saying that, hey, your music is worth point zero 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 one, right? So what do you do? You make a bunch more music programmatic music you make so much music that you gain the system how do you do that 
red zone and you think. And then you spend an hour making something you really love. And that's basically if you break it down to an option. It's like a chat GPT for, for music musicians. You help you help uh, you help facilitate the music generation process. Exactly. And it, and to beat the system because how things are set up, you it's all about volume. Volume. Yes. And we're not created to put out amazing things in volume like, or that quickly that quickly. We are, but again, it's the technology, the way the technology got because we do. People literally get on Instagram and create 50 videos a day, right? But the way the format compresses into a mixed and mastered song, into taste, into SEO, into where that SEO goes to, into the verses, into the lane, that's the bit that we can do. We just never had a tool that allowed our brain to be that extensible. Because here's the thing, however you look at the technology horizon, right? However you look at bioinformatics, however you look at biomimicry, however you look at um, mental computational capability, however you look at all of those things compressed into a computer, our brains are always still going to be the model. Why? Because of P equals MP. I know you know what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, explain, because I don't. <laughs> I got lost there. P equals MP is like, if I if the, if the that door is over there and there's one, two, three, four, five, five of us in here, right? And we're all going to go through that door. Um, five of us are always going to go through the door, right? But what if there's half a person? Well, then we're never going to get through the door because we're if, if that half a person is attached to you, you're always going to be trying to go through the door with that half a person. So it's however many finite problems exist for finite solutions. The brain is the only machine that can do that. And they had to create it because it's a black box because scientists literally don't know how the brain is able to process so much information. We know what dendrites are. We know what dendrites are. We know what the limbic system is. We can give all these things names, but it's still a black box. Uh, I was just curious, how did you map uh, vocabulary to like a uh, emotion? Like, did you like sample a whole to. bunch of different people to, 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 to actually? I, mean, I did, but I didn't. didn't... So this okay. Thing, the, um, the Who study, the Alexander Who study 2016 uh, came out of Berkeley. And it was the first study for voxel-wise modeling. Um, and I heard about it through kind of some mutual scientists. And we took that and we mapped it down EG. The um, study is done in something called fMRI, functional magnetic resonance information, um, like an ME, because you, you put some in the tube and you scan them. And mostly what it does is structure. So they basically resolve what are called voxel-wise addresses in the structure of a person's brain. It's actually not one person's brain, it's six people's brains together. What we did is we reversed that. We took that structure and the mathematical model that came with it, and we were able to use EEG headsets, specifically emotive headsets, and Neurable lent us one of their prototypes, which was very powerful, which is the one you've probably seen in the picture. That was like one of one created. <laughs> um, and we were able to spend about a week at the hackathon mapping about 100 people. And then that is the same proprietary model we're trying today. Okay, awesome. Interesting. Yeah. So you leverage another study to do it. Yeah, yeah okay. that's right. That's awesome. Hearing your story, and I know there's so much more to it that we could even cover in like an hour, obviously, but you're you're an inspiration i'm not to like belittle it but to people like josh's question about how do you show people who haven't seen the opportunity that there is one i mean we need people that have done it and maybe we're born even wired with some of that ambition because i know we're all kind of <laughs> wired differently but to to just go out and do it and so yeah i just commend you for all you've accomplished i know you're still young yeah I'm 35 <laughs> oh, 35 oh my gosh yeah. um, i feel old though I'm gray <laughs> like, oh. when i grow up i'm here it's like 
And even though I've probably understood like 40% of the words you use, in a way, you've made me feel less threatened by technology. So in a weird way, you've made me feel more excited about what's to come. So much excitement. It's just like I said, it's all conversation, right? If you took a Stone Age person, right, and you plopped them right out from like 80th century BCE, and you gave them one of these, and you didn't show them Donald Trump, right? And you didn't show them the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And they're like, this is a freaking magic wand, right? That person will be the most productive entrepreneur ever. He's picking up his phone right now. He's <laughs> 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 an audio phone, referring to the magic wand. But well, it's like, that's, seriously, you literally got, he's still got his overalls on or whatever, and you just gave him this, and he started typing stuff and talking into it, and it was doing stuff. Yeah. And everyone, more even, no matter what economic level you are, it's well known that through Metro PCS, you can get one of these for $10 a month. So you mentioned um, this launch in February. Yeah, yeah. How can we promote you? Yeah, yeah. I can just tell you about it. Um, so, so I think the way I've been making businesses up until now is I create SaaS businesses, right? So we get a client, a uh, corporate client usually, and we build a business around. Um, in the case of uh, BrainRap, that's Universal Music Group. They're basically our big main client, right? And um, we went through the Abbey Road Incubator and that's how they became our client. And so basically I'm simplifying the business around. Sold, Sentiment Capital, um, there's Singularity and there's BrainRap, right? And BrainRap is the consumer facing thing and Singularity is the fund that invests in things. So when I go to London in February, I'm gonna really announce the fund, what it looks like, that kind of stuff. I'm gonna talk about the sale. You guys kind of have some advanced information on that, which is cool. Um, and then people will know about it. People will be able to access BrainRap at scale, buy headsets from UMG. Wow, that's awesome! That's amazing. What's you can go to the best way for people to get rainwrap and literally has a little track fund, and then um, I'll put the password on there. Just awesome. Rainwrap. Dot live. Yeah, it's cool. live rainwrap. Yeah. We'll put it in. Thank you so much for your time. Man. Absolutely, oh man. God. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I could have just kept on listening. I'm I just know. Like, Tell me more. I feel like I need to journal. <laughs> it was so fascinating, though. And I like, even though I there were so many things that are over my head, I felt like I understood the essence of what he was saying. That's so great. Like, I love that. Yeah. I mean, there were like a bazillion references. I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's someone I could definitely just like listen to. Yeah. I'd be like, I'm here. I'm actively listening. I like what he said about how we have to change how we measure the word, like what makes us worth, not worthy, but like the worth of or like how smart, smart you are, or we, because with the educational system, it's measured by the grades that you get. And, right. I mean, it's not a new concept, but- The tests, yeah. But yeah, like how someone can fail a test, then go home and be this crazy piano. Right, <laughs> Mozart. So. But it was fascinating to to just hear like how he would, he would bring everything to a very like clear step-by-step yeah. -step process. I love that. Loved it. That's so why he's gotten so far. Mm -hmm.